キオラのことかととは、You're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific、ココロイホーキンジとコイングワン。Coming up! There is a sort of a consensus among all pro independence parties that they should talk to Paris with one voice. Decolonization from France is still front of mind for FLNKS parties in New Caledonia. I'm able to keep myself busy and not to、uh, work up with emotions, with you know, the loss for myself and my family and also for the country. We speak with Salote Sisifa, the woman behind the distribution of community donated relief supplies in Tonga. I'm grateful, I'm thankful, and I'm, again I say, I am so honored to have been her friend. And we hear about the legacy of the late Adrian Lois Kepler, American anthropologist and leading scholar of Pacific art and dance. Two parties of New Caledonia's pro independence FLNKS movement have restated their intention to attain the territory's decolonization from France after last December's referendum loss. The Palika and Caledonian Union held their first key meeting since the plebiscite over the weekend after the COVID 19 outbreak forced the cancellation of their planned gatherings in January. The FLNKS doesn't recognize the referendum result, which showed 96.5% voted against independence. RNZ Pacific senior reporter Walter Zweifel has been following developments in New Caledonia. Bula Walter, let's just go back over the last referendum to start. What were the conditions around it that made it so controversial? The referendum was to be held in, in December, but because of the Delta outbreak in September, October, The Kanak side or the pro independent side decided that they would like to have the referendum deferred. France said it's not possible because in democracies they keep to timetables and insisted on it going ahead, after which the pro independent side agreed that they would boycott the plebiscite. So when the referendum was held, only about 43% of voters in New Caledonia took part. And above all, in the sort of pro independence or Kanak areas, it was like a total boycott. We're meaning that the result that came out at the end of it was in no way a reflection of how the Kanaks felt. And the view from the pro independence side is this referendum result cannot be taken as the valid outcome of a 30 year process of decolonization. Since that point,、um, the, the Congress over the weekend with the FLNKS parties, this is the, the first sort of concrete coming together、uh, of the political groupings post referendum. Is that right? That's right.、Uh, there were plans to have a meeting in January analyzing the outcome of the referendum, which was held in December, but because of COVID had arrived with the Omicron variant and new restrictions, meeting sizes were. Restricted to 30, so they decided to put off、uh, any further discussion until now.、Uh, we have to keep in mind that just after the referendum, the party said that they will not engage in any negotiations with France on whatever this referendum meant until after the presidential election in France. They are due in a month.、Uh, so, and this was also then essentially accepted by Paris when the overseas ministers said. Days afterwards, that the、yeah, negotiations, formal ones, will not start until after the April presidential election. We're seeing some stronger language, though, emerging in terms of the non engagement with France on this process.、Uh, well, yes and no. As I said, that they were not going along with this plan that was presented to New Caledonians just after the referendum, that is to work towards a new statute as a result of the referendum. 
against independence, uh, the statute that would create a new Caledonia within France, uh, the plan by uh, Sebastien Lucornu, the overseas ministries, to find a political engagement of all parties and above all civil society to figure out what this new statute should be and have it ready by June next year and put, be put to a referendum. Uh, Keep in mind that with this pause until after the French presidential election, we've already lost several months. And uh, key people in France have already said back in December, January, that this time frame is very, very tight. Now, uh, a suggestion has now come out of this Congress by the Palika parties that they should just leave this entire process aside and go back to a proper independence referendum, back to what was back in December, that is, have a, a fourth referendum where everybody takes part, where it's not going to be a boycott. Uh, this is a new idea that's been injected, but how much support that has among other pro-independence parties is not known, given that there is a sort of a consensus among all pro-independence parties that they should try to unite their different positions and talk to Paris with one voice. So, so everything's on hold until the French presidential election. What is likely to occur after after the election result is in? Well, irrespective of who is going to be president uh, after the election, the pro-independence parties in New Caledonia said they will want to engage with France directly to try to find a way to achieve sovereignty. What that will entail is not clear. I mean, there is talk among the pro-independence parties that they would like to find a, a, a sort of arrangement where New Caledonia would be associated with France, that is not full independence. That has to be worked out among the pro-independence parties in New Caledonia, and that will be put to France. Interesting there is that such an approach would basically exclude the anti-independence side in New Caledonia, which of course is significant. Uh, in the referendum, they were a majority. Uh, it'll be a difficult path to pursue, uh, given that the anti-independence side is so large. In this context, it's also interesting that the French government, which wants to have a vote next year on a new statute for New Caledonia, uh, has to take into account the anti-independence side, which wants the electoral roles to be changed. Now they're restricted to Canex, long-term residents, but there are about 40,000 French citizens who've been there for a long time and they're not allowed to vote in this independence or referendum type votes. For this new statute, the anti-independence side wants France to make it possible through changes to the constitutional arrangements that those people are now excluded can also vote. So there is a sort of a, a building conflict of how this post-referendum process in New Caledonia will continue. Since the January 15 eruption of the Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai submarine volcano in Tonga and the subsequent tsunami, hundreds of tons of essential supplies have been donated and sent by the Tongan diaspora and wider community here in New Zealand. Receiving and distributing this support on the ground in Tonga is no mean feat amid an active disaster recovery operation complicated by an outbreak of COVID-19. Today we speak with Sarti Sisifa, the chief executive of Tonga Netball, who has pivoted from her role to support the Tonga relief effort. Saloti has coordinated the arrival and distribution of more than 60 shipping containers full of essential supplies from New Zealand. 
Her new title for now is Aotearoa Tonga Relief Committee Coordinator in Tongatapu. She told RNZ Pacific reporter Lydia Lewis she has also overseen the handover of boats donated by New Zealand billionaire Graham Hart, of which she says six of 20 have arrived so far. They have started dishing it out to the areas that were worst affected, two through the islands of Hapai and also four here in Tongatapu. Also along with that aid from Mr Graham Hart is uh, containers of food which will be uh, distributed to government primary schools for uh, lunch and breakfast program of theirs, which was initiated and is running by the uh, Prime Minister, who of course is our Minister of Education. And also on top of that is the donation which uh, was rallied by the uh, Auckland Tonga Relief Committee in partnership with uh, Matson and other business partners there in New Zealand, enabling containers of relief, uh, food and also necessary supplies for families here in Tonga. At the moment, we have received 68 containers and have been offloaded and the distribution continues. We're running on our third week now. The Tonga Defence, which are the soldiers, the police, also the Quarantine and Ministry of Agriculture, and together with the Customs, they're all in this special operation in delivering uh, and also processing the relief uh, which is coming through from New Zealand. Uh, what should be noted with all the, the uh, goods that have re- been received at the Queen Charlotte Wharf, this is the first time at such volume and in very little time uh, happening, this relief coming through from the families in New Zealand. What is the temperature like and how gruelling is the task of distribution? I've watched the containers being loaded in Auckland and it is a massive task in Auckland. I can't imagine what it is like on the ground in Tonga. Well, here in Tonga, I would say that the first two days it was kind of like learning lessons for us, what to do, what not to do, reviewing in the process. What you see in New Zealand, I think what we're dealing with here in Tonga is double that because here in Tonga the containers are all arriving and they're just queuing up and there's been no time for us to to spare in the process. So we're actually like offloading four 40-foot containers a day and that's quite a heavy load uh, here in Tonga. So as mentioned, the the full force of operation that's coming in and the staff here I'm aware of, they start at 5.30 a.m. every morning and uh, they kick off earliest at around 6. And at times when the traffic is heavy with um, with the public coming in to, to pick up their their uh, parcels and everything, they've, they've run later until 10, 11 at night time. At the same time, the hard thing about it, uh, the weather, we're running at 28 degrees to 30 a day. And at the same time, with the restrictions of COVID, it's very hard trying to keep within the process of... Uh, you know, limited amount of people coming in, the distance, the mask, uh, you know, making sure that everyone is following through. For you personally, how did you get involved with this and what is your role in this relief effort? My real job, if I could call it that, I'm the CEO of Tonga Netball here in Tonga. So uh, when all this happened, we're on lockdown, right? And so Netball is part of the lockdown as we're not essential staff. Uh, MP Honourable Jenny Celesa is my cousin, so she had asked me if I could kind of like help out. And to be honest, when I took it on, I helped out, I thought, you know, okay, yeah, maybe we're dealing with a container here, yeah. My role here for, I'm the on-the-ground on the eyes and ears for, for 
Auckland Tonga Relief Committee. Wow, that is a massive pivot in jobs. Have you and your family been impacted by the disaster? Well, how have you been impacted? Well, in terms of impacted, um, my family home is right up at the waterfront. So our home was one of those that were affected. All the houses at the waterfront area were damaged um, at different levels. Our house is still standing, but the water, the seawater did go in. Furniture and uh, household appliances are done for by the water. We were very fortunate that we got out early. My family and I were able to, to evacuate timely. Um, I think everyone here in Tonga, despite the scale of how it's impacted you, we're, we're still pretty much traumatized. Uh, we've been having bad weather this week of thunderstorms and rain, and you know, uh, we, we really can't uh, get any good sleep because the thunderstorms still remind us of um, the eruptions that happen. So small things like that, you know, uh, so we're pretty much still uh, traumatized. Uh, the, the people of Tonga at the moment. Uh, for myself, um, you know, it's been an emotional roller coaster kind of thing. Um, you know, we've lost a lot in terms of, of uh, household uh, appliances and furniture and everything. But other than that, in comparison, seeing those who have actually lost everything and uh, some even losing family members, I don't think we can complain. Uh, just very grateful uh, that there have been no lives lost of those uh, in my family and those uh, closest to me. At the same time, taking on this volunteer job to to help, um, I think I didn't really know uh, how much I'd be taking on. When I said yes, I thought it was just a few containers. I didn't know it would be uh, going on 70 containers at the, at the moment. Um, it, it's been... Uh, you know, I think that the experience is, uh, comes with mixed emotions, uh, trying to make sure that the, that the uh, uh, relief uh, goods that are coming through are getting to the families and uh, that the paperwork is, is going smoothly and the containers are moved around timely. And just the part about checking in with everyone. Uh, for me personally, um, I'm an on-the-go kind of person, always busy. So with the lockdown happening, I think uh, being able to help the way I have for uh, Auckland Tonga Relief Committee um, has been good for me personally. I'm, I'm able to keep myself busy and not too uh, worked up about the uh, with emotions with what had happened, um, you know, the loss uh, for myself and my family and also for, for the country. So I've been just really busy, haven't had time to kind of digest it all. So, yeah, I, I think it's been, it's been good, it, yeah, this whole thing about keeping busy. People from all over the world have been paying tribute to American anthropologist Adrian Lois Kepler, a leading scholar in Pacific art and dance who died last weekend aged 86. Kepler spent most of her career working for the Smithsonian Museum, where she was curator in Pacific artefacts and an expert in the travels of Captain Cook. As a leading academic in Pacific Island ethnomusicology, she collaborated with many prominent Polynesian traditional artists and leaders, including Tonga's Queen Salote. RNZ Pacific reporter Finau Funua spoke about Kepler's legacy with her Hawaiian friend Kumuhula Noinoilani Zatamaista. I met Agent Kepler at least 40-plus years ago. She wrote about my mother in her Hula Pahu Hawaiian drum dances that was the title of the book. And she did personal interviews 
I have a lot of aloha for her and considered her a member of my family. Her legacy is remarkable, and I think very few people will be able to accomplish what she did in a lifetime. Her research was impeccable, and you could, she would always stand behind whatever she wrote because she would have all of her facts together, and she did a lot of research. So whatever you read was the truth, and so I admired her for that. She had all the background to back whatever she wrote in books. I think the one thing, too, that I really admire about her is that she knew the Queen of Tonga to everyday people, and it didn't matter to Adrian because she was a very, very humble person. However, she, uh, she spoke softly but carried a very big stick. She was no pushover. I feel very, very honored to have known her, and uh, I know that her legacy will live on, and I am especially grateful for her contributions that she gave to the people of Hawaii, their culture, their dance form, even tapa making. It's so hard to pinpoint one thing that Adrian did because she did so many things. It is very amazing and, again, very grateful because her legacy will live on and everyone who reads her books will be enlightened because of her. How could you describe yes. when you heard about Adrian? Yes, I heard away? the news from uh, Mary Jo Freshly, who was her friend. Uh, every year, Adrian would come to the Mary Monarch Festival, and it was our time to meet and visit and talk. She's been going to the Mary Monarch Festival for over 35 years, and so it's something we always looked forward to. She would go to Hilo, and we'd have lunch or dinner together. And when she was in her last few months of being in a, a care home, I would call her and I would chant to her the chant that she wrote about. And I could tell it triggered something in her mind because she would say, Noi, noi, aloha. You know, she tried to communicate. And in the beginning, chanting to her was very difficult because I got so emotional. But later on, it was a lot easier to chant. So I was very upset when I heard the news, but I also realized that she was very sick. So it wasn't a surprise, but it was still hard to hear. Could you describe some of her work um, with Hawaii? Well, she her work in Hawaii stems all the way back to when she used to work at the Bishop Museum here in Hawaii. She worked there. From the Bishop Museum, she went to the Smithsonian. And when I would visit her at the Smithsonian, you know, she would take me in the back of where the exhibitions are, and we could see firsthand the cloaks, the Hawaiian artifacts, the, the tapa. You know, they were kept in these pods. It's called pods that were outside of the Smithsonian Museum. And so her work is, um, where do you begin? You know, where do you begin? She covered so much, and it wasn't just hula, drums, instruments, attire, tapa, feather, cloaks. I mean, she, I, we went to Bonn, Germany, my family to dance, and that's where she had her Captain Cook exhibit. And I don't think they'll ever have another exhibit like that because, first of all, it was too expensive, and the museum pieces 
were very old, and I don't think they're going to loan them out again to be moved. But it was one of the best exhibits I have ever seen in my whole life, and I've seen a lot of them. It's just so much Adrian has done. I will miss her a lot, a lot. She has been such a part of my life, and I do know that one day we're going to meet again. So, you know, I'm grateful, I'm thankful, and I'm again I say I am so honored to have been her friend. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Aire Rao.